0: Father thank you for this time to gather around your word and would you speak now into our lives and our concerns with all that's going on at the moment we thank you that Jesus is king that he's seated on his throne that we can trust him and might we now get to know him better we pray that in Jesus name amen Now, I'm just going to see if I can control this, sometimes it works on the screen, sometimes it doesn't. Well, um, a few years ago, Wikipedia published a list of what it considered to be the most divisive and uh, controversial figures in world history based on the number of edits that each page had received. And uh, the theory is, uh, you know, controversial and divisive figures attract uh, competing edits from their fans and their detractors who take it in turns to edit and re-edit according to their point of view. And uh, back in uh, 2016, the most edited figure on Wikipedia was, who do you think? It was George W. Bush in 2016. He had over 48,000 page Edits of people going backwards and forwards and arguing. Well, I had another look, because this article I found was written a few years ago. And lo and behold, who could it be in 2020 who has overtaken George W. Bush? Well, of course, it is Donald Trump at 54,000 edits. Um, Behind, though, behind Trump and Bush is uh, Michael Jackson at around 30,000. And uh, just behind him, around the same figure, was Jesus. Now, of course, we would expect controversial living figures involved in, the, in politics around the world and the rest of it, and, and someone like Michael Jackson, um, you know, you might expect them to have, you know, fans on both sides kind of going backwards and forwards, and uh, fans and detractors arguing and taking it out on Wikipedia. But in one sense, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that a man who lived 2,000 years ago still attracts that sort of divided opinion that causes people to, to edit re-edit and, and argue backwards and forwards. Uh, according to the stats, you can find these things on Wikipedia, Jesus on Wikipedia averages five edits a day. That's um, how many times people are, are seeing fit to, to, to uh, edit what, he's, you know, what it says about him which is a lot of words, isn't it, being written over and over and over again. And that is just on Wikipedia, one place. He continues to fascinate, and uh, it's not just Christians that he um, fascinates. In, in 2004, uh, Mel Gibson had a hard time convincing producers that his film, The Passion of the Christ, would be a mainstream success. Um, I think there's a, there's a slide on that. I'm still trying to make this work. Um, he, uh, he, he couldn't convince his, the producers that this would be a good idea um, but by the end um, it was a huge blockbuster of course at the time I think it was the seventh highest grossing film of all time uh, though it did still divide the critics this week uh, Mel Gibson announced the sequel The Passion of the Christ Resurrection I don't know if you saw that Uh, And Jim Caviezel, I don't know if I say his name, he plays Jesus. He claimed this week week that The Passion of the Christ Resurrection would be the biggest film in world history. So we'll wait and see whether that turns out to be the case. But it's fairly clear, isn't it? The events that uh, these films and, and all this is based on are the biggest and most influential of world history. And Jesus, the most influential figure, and yet, in many ways, divisive. And the reading that we heard from, from Matthew as we continue this series through these chapters reminds us, actually, do you know, it's always been like this. It's not just moderns writing on Wikipedia who divides. Jesus has always divided opinion. These um, chapters that we've been studying are all about what happens as the kingdom of God spreads Matthew's shown how Jesus established his identity and then he sent out his disciples on a mission and and now we see what happens as this kingdom Jesus is establishing expands and grows. How is this kingdom received? Well, his followers would find very quickly that with kingdom growth would come hostile reception and that hostility would often be verbal would often be words and it's the same today isn't it whether it's people i I don't know using jesus as a a swear word or the butt of a joke or a meme or it's the intelligent atheist giving reason after reason why christianity is nonsense Uh, jesus's followers often encounter hostile words and in the face of that they off they also find that speaking about jesus for themselves with others can be very difficult too i don't know if you find that you're a follower of Jesus we experience hostile words from others about Jesus and we fear to speak words about Jesus ourselves so maybe it should encourage us that Jesus performs another uh, healing at the start of this reading he heals a demon possessed man now we we don't know precisely what that demon possession looked like but it's a common description of people in New Testament times Just because today much of Satan's evil is behind the scenes rather than in people's faces doesn't mean it's not just as real. But it seems to have been particularly obvious in Jesus' day. Precisely because he was the one who could defeat evil. So evil was putting up its biggest fight. But what happens? The man who was blind and mute, we read now sees and speaks and the question of whether we and others see jesus clearly and speak rightly about him then dominates the rest of the reading do those around him see clearly who he is or are they blind to his true identity do those around him speak rightly of him or are their words putting them in a worse position than this demon-possessed man who could not speak at all and we can ask ourselves the same question some seem to see clearly straight away could this be the son of david the promised messiah in other words but the pharisees take a different view and now we see how far they will go to protect themselves in their blindness and to speak in a way that shows they would be better off mute. So Matthew, recording this, gives us first an unavoidable truth from verses 24 to 29. If you could put that one up, first point, unavoidable truth. Jesus' power comes from God. We've seen already in these chapters that there was an inescapable conclusion from the kind of miracles Jesus was doing. This was not a normal man. Could this be the son of David? Well, that's a very reasonable conclusion, but the Pharisees are determined not to reach that conclusion for themselves. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. As we saw, the reason they didn't believe wasn't lack of evidence, but because they simply didn't want to. They will prefer any explanation to the one that is staring them in the in the face. They will prefer to remain blind. The author G.K. Chesterton is reputed to have remarked once, when uh, people cease to believe in God, they don't believe in uh, nothing, they believe in anything. When people cease to believe in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. That's exactly how it is with the Pharisees here. They they wouldn't put it that they are ceasing to believe in God, but that, that is exactly what it amounts to as they are determined to ignore God on earth in front of them. So they reach, they say, okay, let's just find another possible uh, explanation. So they say, oh, well, it's obviously it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, which is another name for Satan, that he drives out demons. Now, the problems with claiming this are obvious, and Jesus drives them home. How can Satan drive out Satan, he says, in effect? A kingdom doesn't attack itself. More than that verse 27 if my power does indeed come from satan how are other people driving out demons now this is slightly puzzling at face value but the, the point is not that jesus is the only one driving out demons but the point is that he's doing so in such an authoritative and decisive way that he stands out completely from anyone else so just look back at Um, Chapter 9, verse 33, if you put the next one up, uh, Joe. um, Chapter 9, verse 33, there it is on the screen. Um, Do do, do you see what the crowd say as Jesus again drives out the demon? He says at the end of that, highlighted there, Nothing. the the crowd say, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Do you see the point? So... Whatever exorcisms others were performing at the time, they weren't on this scale. They weren't with this authority. That's the point that is made again and again in chapters 8 and 9, where others might call on the name of God or whoever to to perform these exorcisms. Jesus just speaks a word, and people are healed, and storms are are calmed, and the dead are raised. Still, back then, the, the, the Pharisee's response was the same. It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons they say back in chapter 9 as well. well you know, what what they're doing and saying amounts to what is sometimes called willful blindness, preferring to continue as they are uh, rather than face up to reality. You can go on to the next one. There's a, there's a kind of parallel of this sometimes in the modern phenomenon of the conspiracy theory. Actually, um, you know, th- there's nothing new about it. Conspiracy theories, is there? Although maybe that's just what they want you to think. But sometimes it's a lot more convenient to believe that there is, you know, a secret group of Satan worshippers controlling the world rather than the simple truth the world is out of control because of sin, not because of the actions of a few secretive individuals. And the truth here is just as clear Jesus really is. Who he says he is. Who else could calm a storm with a word and raise someone from the dead? Well, he concludes, verse 28, it's by the Spirit of God that he drives out demons. And the kingdom of God has come, therefore, he says. More than that, verse 29, the exorcisms that he's doing demonstrate that the strong man Satan has been tied up and his reign will soon be over. So do you see the point Jesus, um, sorry, C.S. Lewis, not Jesus, famously described this in terms of a trilemma, that Jesus is either mad or bad or God. Jesus is mad, bad or God. And this is the the, the Pharisees doing their best to conclude, well, he's definitely not God, therefore he must be bad or, or possibly mad. But it doesn't add up, you see. Would someone driven by evil do their best to, to cure others possessed by evil? Does that make sense? You know, to, to return them to a normal life—is that something that some of these evil would do? To, to take them out of a situation of complete terror and unable to look after themselves, and return them to normal life—that doesn't sound like an evil act. Something that no one else would have been able to do. And you you can run the same kind of argument with other objections that people make. Well, you know, how can we know this actually happened in the first place, that this is what actually happened? It hasn't been made up. Well, again, to which we say, well, why would Matthew and the apostles have made this up? Historians suggest that these early apostles were martyred for their claims about Jesus. It, It really wasn't in anyone's interest to claim Jesus was who he said he was. You know, if he was just another failed revolutionary, better consign him into history and move on, than kind of stick to this message, which makes no sense unless it is actually true. And what happens? Ah, oh, but somebody say, no, no, no. But it's, it's 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 all a conspiracy. It's all made up by medieval monks years after the event. Well, really. Does that really fit with the, with the historical evidence that we have? Go and look at it. Go and look at what, what, you know, the, the number of early manuscripts that we have. Far more than we have of any other ancient document. But just give us that confidence. No, what you have in front of us, what you have in front of you as you turn to the Bible, is what was originally written. Or somebody will say, well, you know, it's just too good to be true. That's why I can't believe it. It's just too good to be true. Well, here is the good news Matthew is showing us. This is the unavoidable truth. Jesus' power comes from God. He is who he says he is. No other explanation makes sense. But then we might say, so what? Does it really matter what we think about Jesus in the end? well he continues then with an secondly if you put that up an unambiguous warning forgiveness only comes from Jesus forgiveness only comes from Jesus Jesus is saying in these in these next few verses verses 30 to 32 he's saying there is no fence if you are not for me you are against me I think Jesus is a great teacher, he's a great example, but he's not the only one. I wouldn't call him God. So many people say that kind of thing. It sounds so positive, it sounds so moderate, doesn't it? Sort of culturally appropriate. But, But Jesus says, well, if you're not for me, in the sense of actually acknowledging that my power comes from the Holy Spirit, that I am God's promised Messiah, come to save the world from sin, not just to give us a pep talk on how to do a bit better if you're not believing that well no actually you're against me you're not for me you're against me but then we say well how can it be so black and white surely you know really god is so big surely there are many paths to god not just one well not so says jesus if you look again it sounds so moderate to want to 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 claim that but we wouldn't say that about a cure for covid19 if we found one would we Oh, we, know, you know, we found this proven cure and all the evidence is there, but hey, there's no need to be so exclusive. Many other medicines are probably just as bound to be, to be as good. Well, we know that's nonsense, don't we? If there's a cure, you need the cure, not just any old alternative. And that is what Jesus is saying about himself, do you see? And then he, he says something that has often been taken out of context or makes people anxious. Verses 31 and 32, did you, did you hear that? Uh, I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but again anyone who speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come well what does he mean well he seems to be saying first that you can sin or blaspheme against Jesus but not against the holy spirit And then more than that, that there is sin that can never be forgiven. Well, it sounds pretty concerning, doesn't it? But the context is really important because we've already been hearing about the Holy Spirit in these verses. What the Pharisees are denying is that the Holy Spirit is at work in Jesus. That's what they're denying, do you see? That the work of God the Holy Spirit in, through and with God the Son as man is not God at all, but is evil. It's the work of Satan. That is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, do you see, in the context? So Jesus is saying, there are many, many sins that can be forgiven, more than that, every kind. Sins against Him, even, except if you deny that Jesus is who He says He is. The logic is, is that it's like refusing that miracle COVID cure, if it ever existed. It will cure you if you take it, but not if you won't. Do you see? You can be forgiven for any sin at all, any sin, except for rejecting the source of that forgiveness. It's helpful to see what Paul says about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you put that up, um, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, Look at what he says, he says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. So Paul says, no, blasphemers can be forgiven because what does he do? He comes to Jesus and he puts his trust in him and he acknowledges after having tried to persecute those who were following Jesus, he comes to Jesus to be forgiven himself. So if you're worried whether it's you that's committed the sin that cannot be forgiven, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, well, actually, you almost certainly haven't because what is this sin? It's the sin of not coming to Jesus to ask for forgiveness. And the thing is, those who refuse to come to Jesus are never troubled by sin and a guilty conscience. Actually, they're saying, look, life is fine. I don't need Jesus, like the Pharisees are saying. Actually, if we're saying that we're in trouble but if we're examining ourselves and we're coming to Jesus and saying forgive me what does he say he says every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men so come to him and be forgiven now we might say all this talk of blasphemy sounds terribly old-fashioned you know we don't we don't really think like that now we don't use those kind of words in fact the UK abolished the old blasphemy laws in 2008 don't know if you knew that but they took them off the statute book and a good thing too we might think you know it's all terribly old-fashioned but that, <clears throat> that actually misses the point about what's going on in our culture now doesn't it because in the in the same breath as we have af- abolished the official blasphemy laws making any speech at all about God you know irrelevant at, at most nothing to make a fuss about say what you like about God it's not against the law but along with that, actually, what have we done in, in, in our culture? We've introduced a whole new set of blasphemies. Things you can't say without fear of prosecution or being cancelled or, or being treated as an outcast. And we saw this last week as we thought about what law-keeping looks like today. You can go back to the other slide now, Joe. this is the same kind of thing of course there are some things that are extremely offensive and hurtful and so this isn't saying oh no just say what you like to whoever you like and everything should be fine no that's that's really not true and and we we know that don't we words do matter Um, and and it's not the point that you should have the right to say whatever you want in any context at all with no comeback no no, there will be consequences to words But but that isn't the point the point is our culture really does still believe in blasphemy do you see just a slightly different kind. But the striking thing is, as we began to, began to see last week, it believes in blasphemy, and there is no forgiveness. No forgiveness at all. No way back when once you've sinned. That is the, the issue. But what is Jesus saying? Every kind of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven with just one exception refusing to come to the one that offers that forgiveness refusing to acknowledge he is who he says he is the blasphemy against the holy spirit the the, the preacher Charles Spurgeon once commented a religion that cannot stand any laughter must be a very rotten one And surely, do you see that? That's actually where we are as a culture, isn't it, now? Everything is so serious. There's no room for a word out of place. No room for grace. No room for mercy. For welcoming somebody back when they've messed up. But grace and rest and the putting down of burdens is what Jesus is in the business of offering. That Offer he made at the end of the the last chapter we saw a couple of weeks ago kind of stands over all these verses come to me all you who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest but it's only in him do you see that's what he's saying here you've got to come to me And you will find the forgiveness you will find the fresh start for that guilty conscience and all the ways you know you've turned your back on the god who made you and the stuff that you feel so dreadful about in your own life and that no one else knows come to jesus and you find forgiveness and a fresh start well that's the the, the second thing we see and then finally we he turns to this uncompromising diagnosis You put that up, Joe. Good speech and bad speech come from the heart. Good speech and bad speech come from the heart. What is implicit here is an objection that goes like this they've heard what Jesus is saying, and they're saying, Why all the fuss about words? It's only words. Are you really saying that what I say can affect my eternal destiny? I mean, what a ridiculous thing. Just the words that come out of my mouth can affect what happens to me after I die or when Jesus returns and how how I stand on the day of judgment. And Jesus is saying, absolutely, words really do matter because they reveal what's going on in our hearts. Can you see he's saying that? He's saying, look, the good tree has good fruit, the bad tree has bad fruit. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of verse 34 out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks and on that basis you and they and i will be judged on our words because they reveal what's going on in our hearts so you pharisees jesus is saying your mere words about what you think of me and my work no they show that you are heading for condemnation on the day of judgment it's that serious But that leaves us with a challenge too, as well as an encouragement. If it's true that that words reveal the heart, well, what then do our words reveal about us? Remember the the disciples being prepared to go out to preach about the kingdom. They're going to find people speaking words against Jesus, as we've seen. They're also going to struggle to find their own words. to to know what to say. And isn't that still the case today as we were thinking about? We get tongue-tied with our neighbours and our colleagues. Jesus says, what does he say? He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here's the question. Are, are, Are our words full of Jesus or perhaps merely of ourselves and our own achievements and our hopes and our dreams? What does that say about our hearts? Well, well maybe we find speaking to others about Jesus is difficult. Well, who doesn't find that difficult? And it's tempting to think the solution is, oh, we just need another technique. We need another training course. We need another, just a set of things we're supposed to say to ask and answer the right questions in the right way. And because I haven't had that sort of training, I can't do it. Well, no, Jesus says, before you get to that, it's about the heart. If your heart isn't full of Jesus, if your heart isn't gripped by Jesus, your words won't be either. And so that is a challenge to us, to consider our own words and what they say about our hearts. As much as we see Jesus hammering the Pharisees, what's he saying to us? But we mustn't forget where we started, because what does he do As at the start of this reading? He opens blind eyes and he makes the mute speak. Are you mute in the face of friends and family? I know I often am. Jesus is in the business of making the mute speak. So go to him. That's what this is saying, isn't it? See, he can change That heart that struggles and you think, well, yeah, maybe my heart isn't so gripped by Jesus. What do I do? Go to him and he will give you rest. He will give you forgiveness. He will change your heart and my heart. So do you see what we're seeing in these verses? This is Jesus, divisive yet inclusive. As he includes anybody anybody at all who will come to him all the sins and blasphemies will be forgiven anyone who comes to jesus so we need to face the unavoidable truth his power comes from god we need to heed the unambiguous warning forgiveness is only found in him and then hear that uncompromising diagnosis, good speech and bad speech comes from the heart. And then when we've heard all that, we come to him and we say, I want to see you more clearly, Jesus. I want to speak of you more rightly to my friends and the people at school and the people at my workplace, the times when I'm on Zoom and I'm, whatever I'm doing. I want to speak of you, Jesus, because my heart is full of you. And he will open our eyes he will loosen our tongues to see him and speak of him. Let's pray now. Father God, we are blind and mute. We thank you that Jesus opens blind eyes and makes the mute speak. May, in in our words, in our actions, may we speak of Jesus so that others might hear of him from us. Would you so grip our hearts because we've been forgiven by the one who has forgiven us through his death on the cross? Thank you that we can be confident that Jesus really is who he says he is and that forgiveness is found in him. And may we believe that for ourselves and may we then speak of that to others. Amen.